I want to use the beginning of this introduction to thank Dr. Mandy Robinson for taking over the podcast for the last few months. She did an incredible job as a host and had some fantastic guests. Hopefully we can get her back on as a co-host in the near future. Our guest for today's episode is a daily reader of the writings and philosophy of A.T. Still. He treats the whole person looking at them from the lens of tensegrity. He is not a pain chaser, nor does he necessarily treat the area of the patient's chief complaint. Hmm. In this episode, Dr. Wisnowski will tell you why. But before we get started, let's hear what one osteopathic medical student thinks about OMT. Andrea Dome, Rocky Vista University, Southern Utah. So the reason why I like OMT and just like being a DO in general is because you have a patient. They come in very pregnant. They're in so much pain, their pelvis is hurting, and their doctor says, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. You just have to wait for your baby to be born. But if you go to a DO, they can treat you with OMM and you can give that patient some relief. So for me, that's like the biggest thing is you can help patients that may not get help otherwise. It, it's great to be back. I took a, a month or so hiatus to study for level three, and now I'm back doing the weekly recordings and very excited to have Dr. Wisnowski with us today. We've been wanting to have a conversation about tensegrity, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Yeah. You know, people really enjoyed your last podcast recording where you were comparing DOs and MDs and comparing the biomechanical versus biochemical relationship. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of people tuning in today and listening to your thoughts and your life experience with this idea of, of tensegrity. So can you remind us, Dr. Wisnowski, where you're practicing and how long you've been practicing for? I'm in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. I've been in practice since 2005. Uh, oh, excuse me, 2004. Um, I have an almost entirely uh, osteopathic manipulative therapy practice. Um, I'm fee-for-service. I don't accept any insurance. I see about, on a busy day, eight patients. On an easy day, four. So how long are those office visits? Are they, are they all an hour? Initial, an initial visit, we schedule an hour, and I'll, uh, it probably takes about 45 minutes. And then, of course, I have to write a note, which doesn't take long. Um, Follow-up visits are scheduled for 30 minutes okay and you're strictly doing osteopathic manipulation are you doing any prolotherapy any acupuncture anything like that i'm an osteopath (laughs) yes does that mean you strictly do manipulation well it means i i'm an osteopath and i practice as an osteopath but i'm not um I, I have no understanding whatsoever of acupuncture. Um, if my patients want acupuncture uh, or if they, they have it and it helps them, I, I have no opinion. Of it. If it helps them, I say, you should go ahead and do that. Um, if they want someone to inject something into them, um, I tell them, you know, have a good day. Uh, I don't do that. <laughs> I see. What about percussion hammer? Do you use the percussion hammer? Um, <laughs> I have uh, a percussion hammer. And, okay. and it's there on display. I had three of them, actually. One of my patient's brothers was a DO, and he gave, and she, he died. She gave me his percussion hammers. And I was fortunate enough to pass one of them on to a student who, um, who desperately wanted 
uh, a percussion hammer. Dr. Thomas Crow got it, contacted me and said, oh, he's got someone that really needs one. Would you be willing to, to sell it to them? And I said, I'd be willing to give it to them. So I gave it to them. Darn, I wish I wish that student was uh, Benjamin Green. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> can I talk briefly about that? Sure, please. So one of the things that, that is uh, not understood fully or well or at all about that percussion hammer is that um, Dr. Oh gosh, who came up with it? Um, Dr. Fulford. Fulford. Yeah. He was big into the percussion hammer. Yeah. And I, I briefly, I did some rotations at the West Virginia school way back. Um, and you know, they, they were really big on the percussion hammer. They, they taught every student how to use the percussion hammer. Um, and I've watched videos with uh, Dr. Fulford actually using the percussion hammer. And if you read what Dr. Fulford said about using the percussion hammer, is that he only invented it because his hands got so tired and so arthritic, he couldn't do it with his hands anymore. What I understood is that, yeah, that was part of it. But also, I thought I remember reading that he, he thought it enhanced what he was already doing with his hands. And I am no expert in the percussion hammer. I've not taken any course. I hope to in the future, but I remember reading that or hearing that. My advice is read what he wrote. Don't take any of this secondhand. Um, don't believe me. Read what he wrote. The reason he came up with that percussion hammer, which was a heck of a thing in its day, was because he just couldn't do it anymore and he needed some help. So to treat it as a primary mechanism um, rather than your hands is a mistake. Hmm. So do you not use it at all because you feel like you've honed your palpatory skills so much you still have dexterity, strength, great sensation in your hands so there's no need really for a percussion hammer? Well, <laughs> sort of. I, I'm not that old yet. And if my hands fall apart, maybe I will use one. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, what you've just said, there is, um, I think, too much emphasis on palpatory skills. I want you to all digest that. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Aren't so, we constantly honing our palpatory skills? Okay. So. I remember reading, who was it, Dr. I think it was Dr. Sutherland. It might have been Fulford, but I think it was Sutherland who bragged about how he could feel a hair underneath 16 pages. Oh, that was Dr. Fulford. Okay. So let me tell you something. I'm in practice now, well, 20 years. There is really no need to have skills like that. Why do you say that? Because what you need to be able to discern as an osteopath is bony tissue from soft tissue. That's it. But anybody can do that. <laughs> I wish. Right? <laughs> I wish that was true. It, it seems that they cannot. Why does that make an osteopath special? Being That's, able to distinguish bone from soft tissue. Because when you feel soft tissue, palpate it, don't feel it. And it feels like bony tissue. Aha, there's a problem here. In bony tissue, you need to be able to know what it's doing. Is it doing what it's supposed to do? Is it doing it too much? Not enough. That's pretty much it. And, and I know there's people that are going to have a fit that I'm saying this, but it really is that simple. So, I, yeah, I think there are a lot of people that are going to have a fit with that. Good. But so hmm, can you expound on that a little bit more? That simplicity. Why in your mind is that how? an osteopathic physician who does manipulation should think, is that correct, and treat according to these principles? First, 
first and foremost, you have to know the anatomy. I'm not bragging here, okay? I've worn out three textbooks, Gray's Anatomy. I've worn them out. And I did that in, in my uh, education during that time period and shortly thereafter. I, I literally had Netter's uh, book memorized. Mm -hmm. And I could pull up in my mind what the anatomy is anywhere I've got my hands. Yeah, that's incredible. It isn't. It really isn't. I mean, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of groundwork that you did over the years. Yes. It, and it's not something, you know, it's not something anybody can learn in a week or a month or a year. You have to keep at it. And so if you understand the anatomy under your hands um, and you can picture that, then you know what, what it's supposed to do and you can tell with your hands what it isn't doing. It's literally that simple. Once you, like everything, once you know what it is, it's really easy. But one thing is, one thing is, what does a muscle feel like? What does fascia feel like? What does a tendon and a ligament feel like? What does a femur, a hard end feel, a bone feel like? But then don't you think another thing is how, how does the interplay of, of bone tendon muscle play out that joint mobility that seems to me to be i don't i don't know if science has even explained that or will explain that like the complex the complex physics physical movement patterns that happen in each let's say each vertebral body there you go so now we're talking tensegrity now we're getting into our topic. Okay. You, exactly. So um, if you've read what Dr. Still wrote, okay, he wrote that man is a machine and in his day, steam engines were new, locomotives were new. He saw human beings as mechanical machines, which was very different than what was being um, practiced at the time. And remember what was being practiced at the time was in uh, Dr. Still's words and Mark Twain's essentially poisoning of people. There was cocaine, there was opium, there was alcohol, mercury and sulfur. Those were the drugs that were used by a physician. They'd gone past bloodletting. Maybe some still did. But you could get a license at, from a barber to be a doctor. And when Still came up with the man as machine, which I think is perfectly uh, applicable, I, th I think it definitely explains it. So what you've just asked is the key question. How does this machine operate. We all go to medical school and we learn the central nervous system. Um, we learn the vascular system. We learn the lymphatics. We learn all of that, which is terrific. So now we know the nuts and bolts of the machine. But nobody puts it together for you. Nobody says, well, this works because this is the way the machine works. I think I can do that for you. Okay. And it's really uh, fairly simple. Um, Dr. Stiles, who was my primary professor at Pikeville College School of Osteopathic Medicine, used to talk about chaos theory and how complexity could be brought to very simple um, understandings. And, and he's right. What Dr. Still didn't have in his day was a computer. We do. A computer consists of two things, hardware and software. And what we have learned 
in medical school is the hardware, not about the software or how it operates. We have no idea how it operates. We're starting to understand it. Um, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, which is all well and good, but it really doesn't um, explain how that leg moves, how you can walk, how you can stand on one leg and not fall over. It doesn't, but it is fairly simple. And that is that every single muscle, ligament, tendon, fascia is highly coordinated by your, by your uh, neurological system. Every single bit of you knows what every other single bit of you is doing every single minute of the day. Making sense? So far, I mean, I, yeah. So I mean, one I, of the things I like to use as is, is an explanation is muscle energy. So if I ask a student, how does muscle energy work? The really smart ones will say, well, but how does it work? Can you explain it? So how they explained to us in medical school was the firing of the Golgi tendon through stretch. When a muscle gets stretched, the Golgi tendon fires and the muscle contracts. But exactly how, why muscle energy works, they, they talk about a resetting of the Golgi tendon. Um, it's threshold of when it fires. But that, I don't, I can't go deeper than that. And I'm not sure that they explained it deeper than that. I promise you they didn't. So that's, that's the other half of the puzzle. This is the thing that people are starting to understand, okay? And, and I'm talking at the PhD level. Every muscle, every ligament, and every tendon, when, it, when you call, when you tell your brain to move it, those muscles, ligaments, and tendons, every single one of them is sending information to your brain, your central nervous system, and it is telling you what position in space it is, how, what's the velocity of it, um, when it's going to stop. All of that is very highly coordinated by your brain. Um, by receiving this sensory information from our muscles, our fascia, the tendons, the ligaments. All of it, yes. It's a, it's a two-way information flow. You're telling it to stretch and it's going, I'm stretching. How far do you want me to stretch? What happens and what I fix in quotes with my patients are defects in that software glitch. The message gets confused, changed, call it whatever you want. But with muscle energy, what you're doing is you are functionally reversing origin and insertion of a muscle, ligament, and tendon and clearing the registry of an error message. It is that simple. So my question then is why, why do we get these error messages, number one, and two, how do you find them? So we were talking earlier and you said, hey, Dr. Green, we don't chase pain. If someone's coming in with neck pain, don't go straight to the neck. So there's two questions there for you, Dr. Uh, Wisnowski. So, um, and, and I accused you of practicing allopathic osteopathy. And you did. I was offended. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, no, I, my brother's an MD. I love, I love my allopathic brothers and sisters. And, and they may be the ones that help us save this. Um, they're not, they're not convinced it works or it doesn't work. Many of them. So, all right. So you were, everybody was taught a screening process and yes. 
we then we're we're taught so much allopathic medicine that when a patient comes in with a neck pain, where do we look? We look at their neck. It, it's just simply been ingrained in us. So the way I like to point it out that, that it's an it's an error of judgment. It's it's a mistake to do that. Now, I'm talking about someone who wakes up and says, my neck is sore. I'm not talking about someone who's got a massive headache or, you know, they, they can't feel a limb or they, you know, someone wakes up and they have a neck pain. All right. It's nothing. It's nothing that's going to be terminal here. Okay. This is we're, just for the sake of conversation. This is a musculoskeletal thing. Okay. Agreed. Sure. All right. And then fall off a ladder, then get hit by a truck. So, we were all taught how to screen and you do a standing forward bending test and a sitting forward bending test and you screen the thoracic and the lumbar spine, cervical spine, range of motion. Then you determine, oh, okay, here's the problem. I'm going to fix it. Well, we don't do that so much after we've been in practice for a while. Oh, Mrs. Jones, you have a sore neck. I'm, I'm going to check your neck. And that's a mistake because it's a mistake to check the neck or to not check the neck. <laughs> it would be a mistake not to check the neck, but for it to be primary in your, um, your uh, diagnosis is a mistake. That so the neck is actually the source of the root cause of the pain. Right. You're the in your differential. If that goes to the top of your list, that's a mistake. I'm not saying it can't be on the differential, but if you just go right there and that's that, that's not osteopathy. And now you may find that there's something there in the neck and you may treat it and they may get better or they may not. Okay. But so that's not osteopathy. So then the question, I think the logical sequential question is then how do you know where to look? Well, I'm going to get there. <laughs> All right. So I knew you were, but I had to ask the question. That's okay. You're, ben, I think you're terrific. So if you um, here, first, let me point this out. The patient who comes in and tells you they have pain in their neck and they woke up with it has no medical training, I'm assuming. You have an undergraduate degree, a graduate degree, postgraduate training. You, you've worked really hard to learn anatomy, physiology, medicine, osteopathy. You've dedicated your life to this. And a patient who comes to you and tells you with no knowledge or understanding of anatomy, physiology, or any of it, tells you they have pain in their neck, and that's the place you look, should make you pause. Because they have no training. All they can tell you is where it hurts. That's it. And I know that we all learned in medical school that um, feelings, while they're valid, are not facts. Right? Sure. Okay. So um, how do you screen yeah. someone and find out where the problem is? Well, let's, I, let's, let's, let's go to the patient that has that musculoskeletal pain. They have a poor hyperkyphotic posture, a... Stop forward right flex Stop neck right there. Stop right there. Stop. <laughs> you cannot practice osteopathy with your eyes. Why not? Because so you because you said earlier the palpatory skills weren't that important. Oh, I didn't say they weren't important at all. I said find being able to feel a hair between 16 under 16 layers of paper. Okay. Is not important. But you need okay. 
you do need to be able to differentiate between hard tissue, soft tissue, and what's going on. Okay. Um, so what is most important then? Sorry, I'm what, with your sensation. If it's well, not. Well, here, your palpatory skill. Okay. Paradox. Um, here's why you don't practice osteopathy with your eyeballs. If you have an image in your head of what somebody is supposed to look like, okay, and they are deficient compared to that image that is in your head, okay, you are going to diagnose them as there's something wrong. Well, what if that's just them? What is that? What if that is their, I'm going to put in quotes, normal variation of anatomy? What if that's just the way they were built? But you've decided with your eyeballs, oh, their shoulders are unlevel. I'm going to have to level those. You will not help them. And in fact, you will make them worse. So how would you discern that? This is their norm. This unleveling of the shoulders, that's just how they came out of the womb. Osteopathy is not concerned with what it looks like. Osteopathy is concerned with how it works. Hmm. So all it has to do is function within their limit of normal, whatever that might be. Um, I see. One of, the, one of the big mistakes I see, uh, elderly patients get a knee replacement. 88-year-old lady, does she need 120 degrees flexion on her knee? Probably not. Do you see the physical therapist try to get 120 out of them? At least 100. And what <laughs> yeah. happens? What happens? They don't get better. They're limping. They're in pain. If you can get 80 or 90 degrees, that's all an 88-year-old lady needs. But they're, they're working on that concept of what it looks like is more important than how it functions. And so we're back to, oh, I'll look only at your neck. So how do you figure out, is it her neck or is it her ankle? And we're using that for hyperbole. Let mm -hmm. me do this. What if her foot is, or ankle is so painful that she doesn't put any weight on it? How could that cause her neck to hurt? Well, human beings are hardwired to keep their eyes level. So let's say she's straining her neck to keep her eyes level because her foot hurts. You didn't check. So how would you know it was her foot or her ankle or her knee or her hip? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so then, Don't pay how... me, Ben. What's that? Don't patronize me. <laughs> well, my follow-up question to that is, how do you, you told me you could screen the whole body in two minutes. Yep. How do you do that? Um, what I do is I have a patient stand in front of me. I'll flex their head forward and I'll motion test, motion test the cervicals. Very gentle, nothing hard, nothing fast. I move down through the thoracic spine, um, down one side, down the other, standing forward bending test. I then have them sit on the table. I repeat it. And I can tell when they're sitting, has it changed from when they're standing? What's changed? Where do I go next? And it's a very simple algorithm, which you can memorize in no time flat as to where the problem is. Where do I look? But if you only work or only look where it hurts, or if you just do the same thing to everybody every time, all you're going to do is help about half the people you could help. If you screen people, accurately and you're able to find oh it's over here here's the problem doesn't matter where the problem is compared to what they're telling you as a symptom 
Uh, I'm sure that you and, he, and many of the audience who have been treating patients, put them in a position and the patient said, hey, I can feel that over here. Well, there you go. It's because their sensation is not reliable. It's valid. My neck hurts. Yes, ma'am, I believe you. Your neck hurts. But it's not a fact. Your neck could be hurting. Let me use an example of headache. I love this example of headache. If I have 12 patients standing there, men, women, tall, tall, short, fat, skinny, they all say I have a headache. What do you think the chances are they all have the same cause for that headache? Probably not very likely. The same thing is true of all these other complaints. And, and we're only talking musculoskeletal here. Osteopathy is more than musculoskeletal. In, so, Dr. in Dr. Still's words, if the musculoskeletal system is operating as well as it can, the body will have an ability to heal itself. Now, if you're shoveling, you know, drugs and alcohol and sugar and you know, cigarettes and not sleeping, chances are we're not going to be able to help you. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. So, Lee, my question, a follow-up question, you, you said you're able to do the full body screen in two minutes. Yep. You said screen accurately. How do you screen accurately? Is that just practice or is that, is that the understanding of joint biomechanics, how muscles should be um, causing different joint motions? No. You, like what, you, what does that mean? You have to you have to understand um, how much something can move. You, you know that uh, what what a fairly normal range of motion is for um, you know uh, an arm, a leg, a knee, an ankle, uh, thoracic spine. Um, I have and, and it, it's hugely variable. Um, I have. 88 year old ladies who are a little portly that can bend over and put their hands flat on the floor. They've been able to do it their whole lives. If you looked at them, you'd say, you can't bend over and they do it. You have other people that are long, lean and skinny and, and 90 degrees is as far as they flex. Hmm. Um, See, so you have to be, you have to be aware of what's normal for them. And I can tell you that um, when you, start trying to learn how to do this. It's the same way as when you start your allopathic physical exam. You know, the first few exams you did, you either started at the bottom and worked your way up or at the top and worked your way down. You did it consistently. You, did, you do it the same way so you don't miss anything. Sound familiar? Sure. Okay. You know, uh, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, right? Yep. And the first few times you do it, God, it takes you forever. But <laughs> after you've done it 50 times, oh, five but minutes. You, but you got to know what you're looking for, right? Absolutely. And, and how do you do that? Study, practice, practice, practice mentor. Practice. Yeah. Um, but that's part of why you're in training and, um, I know that a lot of schools teach the students uh, to lay uh, the, the patient down um, prone and they check each vertebral segment. They motion test each vertebral segment. You obviously can't do that. Yeah. I think a lot of people that I have seen screen, particularly screening the spine, will sometimes grab a shoulder, put their thenar eminence on that um, spinous process and then just motion test grossly up and down the spine. Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, it, it, it you know, it's, it's practically useless. Um, but it can be taught. I can teach um, a student how to screen 
uh, in two minutes or less and know where they want to start. So, so Lee, why would you say that the motion testing, like gross motion testing is useless? Don't you think that that could potentially give you an idea of where there is a, a tight muscle or a, some asymmetry in the vertebral body? Uh, I didn't say that palpatory skills are not useful. Um, but you have to know if, if pairing standing versus sitting versus lying down, um, then you're doing part of it. And again, you're probably most testing the thing where they're telling you it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, pain, remember, remember uh, uh, your neurology. Pain and temperature are contralateral. Correct? Correct. So if to say, oh, this pain in my left shoulder, we're not talking heart attack, could be coming from the right shoulder? Potentially, yes. Correct. And, and I've had students in the room while I've done that. And, and they, they just, they're amazed. But then when I explain to them, well, neurologically, pain and temperature sensation are contralateral. Their brain is just telling the patient that it's the left shoulder that hurts, when in reality, it's the right shoulder that's got a, a dysfunction. So, yeah, this is really interesting to me because I was having a conversation with one of my mentors and attendings, and they said, Ben, if I have a patient who's referred to the OMM clinic and I do my screen and I find somatic dysfunction that I don't think is related to the chief complaint of why they were referred to the clinic, I will not treat that patient. And I asked the follow-up question. I'm like, well, wow. It's really difficult for me as, as an intern to figure out, is this somatic dysfunction actually related to their chief complaint? It, it seems to me that with this idea of tensegrity where our body is this, I guess, machine of bones, muscle, fascia, ligaments, and tendons that everything is somehow interrelated to be able to figure out if the ankle is affecting the right ear. I'm like, holy smokes. <laughs> I guess I just, I just felt like, wow, I'm so now, far from that. That's exactly what it is, Ben. That's exactly what it is. This is this is not about um, anything other than what you just said. And as that's the difference of osteopathy, you're not married to the belief that where it hurts is where the problem is. Your job as an osteopath is to figure out where the problem is. Anybody can tell you where it hurts. Right. You've got to figure out where the problem is, and it is learnable. It takes work and time and effort to do so. And do you feel like within the body, there are certain patterns. If somebody has, let's say, shoulder pain that you find left SI joint pain or, or left hip dysfunction, do you find certain patterns? Um, I can tell you that what Dr. Stiles used to teach us was that low back pain patients, seven out of 10 of them, it was their rib cage. Really? Now, yes. why? What made, what made Dr. Stiles say that? Uh, one of his, Mitchell probably taught him that. So after almost 20 years in practice, I think he was almost right. I think it's more like eight out of 10. And tell me how many of your low back pain patients you check their rib cage? Zero. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And then see, this is the challenging thing with osteopathic medicine is that I feel like every single osteopath has their own idea about what could be causing this person's low back pain. Dr. Styles would say the ribs. 
you know, another doctor would say, well, it's the, it's the sacrum. Another doctor would say, well, it's the sacrum and the, the lumbar spine. Well, you know, and then, so as, as an intern learning this, I'm like, well, who's right. Is everybody right? Like what? (laughs) It's confusing. So the proof is in the pudding, right? So if, if the person who thinks it's the lumbar spine treats the lumbar spine and they don't get better, right? I guess it wasn't that. True. If the person who treats the rib cage treats it and they do get better, maybe, right? Stronger evidence. Sure. Right? I would agree. And when you see a practitioner do it time and time and time again, Eventually, you got to go, uh, wait a minute, maybe they're on to something. So it also adds credence to the muscular energy, muscle energy explanation and the explanation that what we're really fixing is a software glitch. There's, there might be wear and tear in the hardware. Okay, Uh, how many patients come to you with low back pain and got an MRI already in their hand? A fair amount. Okay, they're 50, 60, 40, 50, 60 years old. Oh, my God, they've got herniated discs. They've got some they've got some arthritis. Who doesn't? Who whoever came in at 50 or 60 years old with a perfect X-ray? There's nothing wrong with your back. Doesn't exist. But it's mm-hmm. not it's not usually the cause. It's it's really not usually the cause. And so if someone comes limping into my office, bent over, can't stand up, haven't been able to stand up for three weeks. They've gone to the chiropractor, they're taking medicines, they were injected, still in pain. And in fifteen or twenty minutes can walk out. Either I'm the greatest hypnotist in the world or I simply got the musculoskeletal system to function as it was supposed to. So, Lee, here's a question for you, because it seems to me like you have hinted to that we are just instigators of letting the body we're like the spark that lights the fire and gets the body to heal and correct its own software. It seems to me that, and I am, I am an intern, I'm, I'm learning this stuff, but it seems to me that most of the patients, I'll say eight out of 10 patients that I see have a horrific posture, they're forward flexed, they have very limited strength in their abdominal muscles and their core stabilizing muscles. <laughs> and it seems to me that it's a big, big component of why they're in pain, why they have the low back pain. So, Ben, what you just what said you um, about the laxity of musculature in the abdominal, yet they're flexed forward. So tell me what it is that's holding, that's pulling them forward. Could be pec hypertonicity. Um, could be. It, it could be what the abdominal muscles too tight, the ones they don't have that are in poor shape. Well, you know, I mean, it's just like a, a posterior rotated pelvis. Just, just lazy. Don't sit up. Don't sit on the initial tuberosity. Just fall back into the couch. <laughs> um, there is you no know? doubt. There's no doubt that pelvic dysfunctions can cause low back pain. No doubt about it. I treat them all the time. But seven or eight out of ten non-traumatic low back pain, with or without radiation, it's rib cage. So I challenge you this: the next time one of those patients comes in, and you can get them to lie supine. Take your dominant eye, get it over the midline, 
put your hands mid-axillary on the lower rib cage. Have them inhale and fully exhale. And you will see that probably the right uh, lower rib cage is held in inspiration. And you'll go, what's up with this? And you'll also notice that the right uh, hemipelvis is cephalad. And you can pull on the leg. You can do a, a high velocity to the, to the right hemipelvis, but it'll just go right back where it was because uh, the rib cage is pulling it up. And the most common pattern I also see is the left upper rib cage is the second component of it. it it's a, a compensation. So hmm. I treat those two dysfunctions, <clears throat> and most of them get up off the table and go, Oh my God, that feels so much better. So right, you said right lower rib cage held in his left, left hemi pelvis, no pelvic left, floor, left upper rib cage held in inspiration. Right lower, left upper, most hmm. of them, most of them, and then there may be an additional pelvic uh, rotation, a flare, a pubic symphysis. There could be something else. It might be L five. But that's that's usually the thing that that fixes it. So, with your with your knowledge of anatomy, what is it? So you're saying the right lower is held in inspiration. Yep. Hmm. So do we have like hypertonic intercostal muscles in the right lower rib cage, or no? You're 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 again you're you're focusing on the muscles. What is it that controls the muscles? Central nervous system. Nerves, yeah. Not the nerves. Those are just wires. Those are just conduits. The central nervous system. Remember the homunculus? Sure. Two of them, right? One for muscle and one for sense. Sensory. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's common. Uh, in the common vernacular, everyone says, we only use 10% of our brain. Well, why in the world, after years of millions of years of evolution, would we have 90% of something we don't need? That 90%, and this is, this is where the PhDs are, are starting to explore. That 90% of, of your central nervous system, your brain, is controlling everything. I'm not talking about just um, you know, the breathing and digestion and heart rate. It's coordinating all muscle, ligament, tendon activity. It's measuring it. It's adjusting all the time. You know, we're trying to build self-driving cars. What we're doing is we're trying to build a human being. It's got software and a computer and hardware <laughs> that moves. <laughs> well, what do you think? So, as far as a component of pain or a root cause of pain, this is what I have learned. This is a little bit about what I read when talking about like the TMJ joint specifically. <laughs> when someone is grinding their teeth at night or they're um, clenching their teeth throughout the day, that will wear on their, their temporal mandibular joint, which can cause some subluxation where that the... Hold up, Ramus hold of, up, hold up. <laughs> Subluxation of what? The ramus of the mandible, where it'll come underneath that disc that's there. Okay. I mean, it's not, maybe not a true, we'll maybe call it a pseudo-subluxation there. And there's some joint instability. And then people have this, the TMJ pain, right? Mm -hmm. Around that joint. It seems to me, and some of the articles that I've read talk about the proprioceptors in the joint that send this signal to the central nervous system saying, hey, brain, we've got some instability here in this TMJ. And the brain sends a signal back to lock down all the muscles around the TMJ, the masseter, the pterygoids. And then there's this chronic cycle of pain as a result of that. What's your question? What do you think about that? Do you agree? Do you not agree? Well, what Dr. Still said is that some people are 
so far gone or so poisoned with whatever it is they're doing that he wouldn't even try to fix it. So if, if I have someone who has decided they need to straighten their teeth and they're going to drink 10 cups of coffee and they're going to stress out and worry, do you really think that you're ever going to be able to fix that TMJ problem? Do you think you're going to be able to get them to stop grinding their teeth? Because they're drinking coffee? They're anxious. They don't sleep. It's it's anxiety. Um, People grind their teeth because of anxiety, fears, worries. You know, can you give them drugs? Oh, sure you can. But that's not really addressing the problem. The problem is that they're grinding their teeth. So why are they grinding their teeth? What's, what's going on in their life that, that they're grinding their teeth? And if, if they are unwilling to yeah. address that, then sure, treat them as an allopath would, but, but don't treat them as an osteopath and set yourself up to fail. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there definitely can be other psychological life stressors that could be causing the grinding. But if we take those out, and just look at the joint, do you think that instability of that joint um, can initiate pain, the pain pathway? Well, let me ask you this. What's the purpose of pain? It's a protective mechanism, it seems to me. To get you to stop. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop harming your body more. Right. And... If someone refuses to stop, well, <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. But, you know, sometimes like it's it's not a conscious decision at night, you know, when they're sleeping to stop grinding their teeth like they don't have control over that. Well, so they're victims. <laughs> well, I don't you, know if I'd call them victims, but. Well, you, you can't help anybody who, who insists on being a victim. So what, what, what I have done with some of my patients is talk to them about a, it's just like this little suction cup that will pull your tongue out between your teeth at night when you sleep. And, and you drool all over yourself and it's a little awkward and a little uncomfortable. Definitely not very sexy at all, but hey, you wake up in the morning and you don't have that. Don't Your masseters aren't on fire. Your, your splenius capitis and semispinalis capitis, those posterior cervical muscles aren't sore or as sore. Yeah, but how's um, her ankle? What's that? How is her ankle? <laughs> check her ankle. Really? Are you being serious now? Or are you joking I'm with being, me? I'm being some. I'm kind of being serious. Um, you said with the with the person that you had initially talked about that they had straightened their teeth. Yeah, and they were using a, a bite guard at night, a front incisor bite guard to help them protect their teeth and correct their overbite. And so I would I would challenge you once again to go into the anatomy of the cranial bones and ask yourself, could moving the teeth around in these bones cause any kind of cranial dysfunction, which could turn into a cervical dysfunction, which may present as a TMJ? 100%, yes. The answer is probably yes. So, you know- Probably, that's better. If you tell them, listen, you know, it's probably because you're trying to straighten your teeth that, that you're having, you know, this problem and, you know, it may eventually get better and I can treat whatever dysfunctions I find, including your ankle. Um, <laughs> but it, it may be the cost that you're going to pay for straightening your teeth, because if you were meant to have straight teeth, you'd have straight teeth. Again, we're back to the unleveled shoulders. Oh, I'm going to level everybody's shoulders. Good luck with that. Yeah. 
you're going to cause more problems than you're going to fix. But boy, it looked nice. They're level. So when you're trying to get to the root cause of, let's say, somatic dysfunction and the software problem in our body, when we talk about the nerves, not the firing pattern of these nerves, not firing correctly. Very good. What is it that's causing this? You don't you don't think it's posture oftentimes or you don't think it's a eating a lot of sugar, not sleeping, stress, or is it all of the above? It, it could be all of the above. It can be. I have patients who have come into me that are bent over and writhing in pain. And I'll say, what happened? What happened? And they'll say, Doc, you won't believe this. I bent over to pick up a pen. It can be a cough. It can be a sneeze. Um, easy. It, 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 sometimes it's real easy. Uh, repetitive motion. I'm making a lot of money from Peloton. You guys just keep pedaling <laughs> that Peloton. It's repetitive motion. You know, you're 60 years old and the instructor's 25 and you're going to beat them. Come on in. <laughs> so it can be all that. And, you know, you probably shouldn't live on sugar. You, you probably should, you know, eat, eat better. Make sure you get good sleep. Don't worry. God almighty. Worry is the thing that ages you and kills you. So, yeah. So, so Lee, how, when you're assessing a, tr- uh, a patient and treating a patient, how do you go to where the money is at? And what I mean by that is not the Peloton handing those out like candy to people, but what is really, what, what can I fix in this patient that I have before me in this person that is going to give them the most amount of relief from their pain? When you have the sugar and the lack of sleep and the stress and the poor posture and the poor core stabilizing muscles, like how do you figure out in my 20, 30 minute visit, where can I help this patient the most? Well, first, if you're going to address them as an osteopath, you have to find out where the problems are, where they lie, and they can be anywhere. Okay. Um, and problems, are you talking about musculoskeletal problems? Uh, yeah, dysfunctions. You, you can have a wrist dysfunction that causes a shoulder dysfunction that exacerbates or causes a TMJ. You could have a cranial dysfunction that's causing a TMJ. So you can, you can do all those things. You can be screening, but you need to do a thorough screening, not just go to the neck and find, oh my goodness, I've got stuff here because you're missing all the rest of it. And so as you're treating all that, as you're diagnosing and treating all that, you can then address the sleep issues. What time do you go to bed? Oh, one o'clock in the morning. Why? You know, um, I you, see. Can, you can address those issues. And I'll tell you something. Because we touch our patients and we look them in the eye, they trust us. It takes time, but they trust us. And they will tell you things. They'll, they'll be honest with you, whereas they may not be as honest with others or revealing you're, you're going to get to know them and you'll, you'll know what the, um, what the lifestyle uh, things may be. Um, but no one's yeah. a saint. <laughs> sure. Okay. So you, you kind of stay in your lane and focus on the, is it fair to say biomechanics, the musculoskeletal system? How is that working? How is this machine that is our software, our body, how is that working? And then after I get those components moving well and those nerves sending good feedback to the central nervous system, then you address the lifestyle issues. No, I do them both that, at the same time. You do them at the same time. I see. Yeah. Okay. Ben, if, if you have someone who is not sleeping well, for whatever reason, okay, 
I don't care if you do all the right exercises, take all the right vitamins, okay? Uh, eat all the right foods. Don't eat any of the bad ones. But you don't sleep at night. You can't be healthy. I agree. Yeah. If, if you are walking around terrified, waiting for the other shoe to drop, okay? I don't care if you're sleeping well at night. You probably aren't without drugs, Ambien. Um, you're probably not eating well. You're probably not exercising. You're not taking care of yourself. How in the world would you expect to be healthy? Yeah, true. I agree. <laughs> How's residency going? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. We are very fortunate in our residency. I have had, and other residents are going to be probably jealous. I've only had one night shift. Wow. All of all of intern year. That, I think that's unheard of. Well, it, it definitely needs to be gentler and kinder. There's there's no need to abuse interns and, and medical students and residents. That that those days need to be over. Yeah, and, and our residency, and I'm thankful for this, there is a, a wonderful balance between clinic, hospital, and your life outside of medicine. And so I really, I really appreciate it. Wonderful. It, as it should be. So Dr. Wisnowski, we are on one hour here. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, I loved our conversation. Should probably wrap it up. Do you want to give us your last thoughts and maybe a summary about tensegrity, which is our topic for today. And, you know, maybe we kind of bounced around a little bit, but. What would you say about that in summary? So um, what's the one word that we didn't use today? Um, what's that word? It begins with a W. Um, it's tossed around. W. Yeah. Um, go ahead. It, it, the whole patient. What, what's the, oh, it doesn't start with a um, doesn't start with a W, but holistic. <laughs> no, not holistic. Sounds... Oh crap! Uh, <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's let's go with holistic. We didn't use that word once, right? We did not. No, looking at the whole. The, you're looking at like the whole person. Yeah. Um, because I see I see that used a whole lot and. And I, I think it's because and it, with osteopaths, um, we treat the whole patient, which implies that MDs don't. And that's just not true. To me, it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding or a complete non-understanding of what we just talked about, about how a human being actually works. Um, and we, we focused on the um, neurological, the central nervous system, the physiological, the anatomical. That's the machine. That machine also has feelings. So there's psychology on top of it, which is part of what you have to do as a good physician, I think especially as an osteopath. And again, when you start touching people and helping them and they realize you care, um, they're going to tell you about their lives and about themselves and what's really going on. Sometimes right away, sometimes it takes a little while. You get to know them, figure things out. For me, that's um, the greatest uh, pleasure in all this is, is figuring it out and helping somebody. And I think there's a whole lot of us that got into it for that. Um, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to help people. So I think understanding it, that it is a machine but it also has feelings is important. How's that? Wonderful. Yeah. It's always a pleasure. Dr. Wisnowski. I always glean so much knowledge from your clinical and um, life experience. So I really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure our, our listeners do as well. And do, do I need to give you my address so you can send me your, your percussion hammers that you're not using? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you come on down? I should. I was actually just down in Florida for the convocation in Orlando. Did you see Ed Styles? 
I did not. No. He was there. I couldn't get away to do it. Yeah, I met some incredible physicians. It was it was a wonderful experience. So. Charlie Beck. Did you see Charlie Beck? That's not ringing a bell either. Okay. But <laughs> well, I did meet a lot of other people. You should have come a little further south, and whenever whenever you get a um a what is it? You can do an elective. Yeah, an elective or an away rotation. Come on down. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. That'd be that would be a fantastic, wonderful experience. We take so. students. If anybody's interested, we're happy to have students. Okay. I'll have to take you up on that. Okay. Okay, Dr. Wisnowski, wonderful talking with you. We'll we'll have to come up with another topic and bring you back on sometime in the near future. Thank you, buddy. Okay, you have a great evening. Bye bye. He is a beekeeper, triathlete, and osteopathic physician who loves and lives by the writings of A.T. Still. It is inspiring to learn from someone with a career of practice already under their belt. Thank you, Dr. Wisnowski, for these osteopathic pearls. If you would like to ask a question or be on the podcast, click on the link of the episode and let us know. If you would leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, we would greatly appreciate it. See you next week.